0: Welcome to the official St Patrick's College podcast as we begin our journey into discovering some of the all-time great stories from one of Ballarat's most famous institutions. I am Paul Nolan, the Director of Community Development at St Patrick's College, and I'm excited that you are joining me on this school excursion of sorts as we explore the moments and the men that have contributed so greatly to our rich tradition. In this episode one, we will explore in detail a timely story with one of the college's favourite sons. As we head into footy final season, which of course includes the Brownlow Medal, we will spend some time with old collegian Brian Gleeson, the winner of the 1957 Brownlow Medal. While not quite the oldest surviving Brownlow medalist, as 1958 winner Neil Roberts is marginally older... No man who won a Brownlow before Brian is still with us, so he holds a unique place in the game's history. As a passionate supporter of the green, white and blue, we are very pleased and privileged to welcome Brian to join us today. Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, It's a great honour and privilege to have you involved in our first podcast. So to get started, um, you attended St. Patrick's College as a boarder from Wallora in 1947. What prompted that move? Well,
1: uh, we were a farming family in those days and uh, lived 10 miles out of town. Um, You know, it was very, no school buses or that type of thing and Catholic children to Catholic schools was a big issue. Uh, I think the guidance of the clergy at the air at the parish um, would have persuaded it. But it started seven years earlier when we went off to Ballarat boarding school at Villa Maria, which was just a little school for 30 uh, people run by the mercy nuns from Ballarat East. Uh, And I guess uh, Dad had been to St. Pat's, so we looked forward to going on to St. Pat's, and we went up there and saw football games or athletics at times, and... uh, we were really well preconditioned to want to go to St Pat's, yes.
0: Yeah. So coming into that environment, you know, so far away from home, must have been, you know, challenging for you. So how did you go well, about was, settling in?
1: Well, it was challenging when young. I remember uh, the first day when the parents left, I felt very sad and dislocated, uh, standing under a, a stand with a tank on it uh, at Villa Maria. And uh, um, put my hands up and held it but years later when I went back there I found it wasn't even up to my hip (laughs) uh, in height so uh, uh, you know it must have been very small at the time and then on to St. Pat's uh, it didn't seem to be a problem moving on to St. Pat's uh, from the point of view of uh, integrating because we'd been involved in boarding school before on the other hand uh, it was a a difficult integration in regard to the academic side of things. Uh, there was a different uh, curriculum, that's it. They taught different subjects at St. Pat's uh, in terms of Latin, French, algebra, geometry, in years seven and eight, which they didn't do at Villa Maria. So I was uh, a good two years behind in that area when I got to St. Pat's, and as a result, my academic career at St wasn't very good.
0: So, according to the 1947 College Annual, you at least quickly made your mark on the athletics track, winning the under 13 100 yards and the 220 yards handicaps, as well as the, the high jump, of course. What can you remember about that day?
1: Well, I just don't remember the running so much, but I do remember the high jump. Uh, it appealed to me very much. Yeah, that was one of the great things of St. Pat's. The opportunity for sport was fantastic. And, of course, I uh, I had a bit, of a bit of a love for sport and, uh, you know, reasonably good at it. So we like doing things we're good at, don't we?
0: Oh, absolutely. I understand you had a special affinity for the old handball courts as well.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, both my brother and I did well at handball. I think one, one year, I think, I won the under-14s, he got the under-15s. A bloke called John Maloney uh, got the under-16s, and uh, Les Mogg uh, won the Open uh, um, competition, and uh, three out of the four became uh, VFL footballers, and a couple of us played interstate. And my brother, of course, um, got a couple of Brownlee medals, uh, not a couple of Brownlow, not a couple of uh, Premiership medals as well, so... Uh, it, it must have been good for us to uh, play handball.
0: Yeah, the yeah. old handball courts must have contributed greatly to the school's football history. The hand-eye coordination must have come into yeah. play there. And there were six
1: of them. There's always plenty of room. It, it seemed to go off the boil a bit at times, playing handball, but it, uh, it was a great game, I thought.
0: Yeah. I think in that year you also won the, the high jump at the um, the Ballarat Combined Sports you know, representing St. Patrick's College, that suggests that you must have had a very natural talent for jumping.
1: Oh, well, it was pretty old-fashioned, you know, just the old scissors, but, uh, you know, I guess I was uh, the one who did better at it than anyone else at St. Pat's at that time. So I was in the BPS team, I think it was called, and uh, I did win it, yeah. I was in three, well, at least four events that day, the last year. I came second to John James in two of them, namely the um, white putt and the uh, long jump, and he broke records in both of those, and also uh, was in the hurdles, which John won. And Just while we're on John, um, he won five events at that, event, at that sports day in the Mallard Public and uh, Ballarat Schools competition. And uh, he broke records in two of them. So he wasn't real bad, was he?
0: No, he seems <laughs> like he was incredibly talented. You, the two of you had you know, eerily similar career paths. You both you know, left school to play VFL football, you for St Kilda and Heath for Carlton. And you both made your senior debuts on the same day. And you both won Brownlow medals. Can you share yeah, some of your favourite yeah, memories of John? It?
1: Well, John, John was the best at everything on the sporting field. He was a... You know, the muscles of a man when we were boys, you know. And I recall he won the bowling and the batting averages at, at cricket. And then he was the best footballer, and you know, including that day with thirty-five goals. And um, then in the athletics, I just told his story of the five wins. You know, and all, another thing, you either did uh, cricket or uh, rowing. Not John James, he did both. And he, he pulled an oar in the
0: first crew. So he was just uh, fantastic. And he was a good student as well. Yeah, remarkable fellow, John. It's amazing to think that he kicked 35 goals in, in one game. If, you know, this yeah. year in the AFL, he'd probably be leading the Coleman medal after just one game.
1: Uh, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Yes, but well, he wasn't a great kick in terms of accuracy. And that's why he finished up on the back line at Carlton, I suspect. Um, But he was a tiger, you know, chasing the ball. Uh, He he had a mind where he couldn't allow himself to be beaten.
0: Now, while you came to St Patrick's initially, you know, in search of academic excellence, it soon became apparent that football too would play a very big part in your life as a student. Can you share with us some of your favourite memories of, of playing football at the college?
1: It was a real privilege to play in the first 18. I mean, to get the Guernsey... Green, white, and blue striped Guernsey in the first place was uh, we all regarded it as an exceptional honour, and uh, we had the benefit of brother o- Bill O'Malley as the coach, and he had uh, very simple rules, and but they worked. You know, for example, uh, uh, we weren't allowed to bounce the ball, so that there was no misunderstanding. Uh, further up the field, and people could lead immediately when someone got the ball downfield. Another one was uh, uh, we had to play on immediately if we got a free kicker or mark from the centre line forward. Well, that sort of threw uh, threw the balance out of the opposition. They they didn't uh, catch onto that one and so forth. And uh, the rest of it was very much basic skills training. and uh, we were we were given a lot of that and uh, uh, skill development you know on both sides of the body was very, very important. And the other thing was of course uh, the morale building uh, by pointing out what previous people had done for St. Pats in the green, white, and blue, and uh, we should emulate them. And keep winning, you see. So he had us in his hands really, and we we responded to it.
0: That's yeah. fantastic.
1: So you know, individual games I don't recall particularly other than that one where we hit the forty eighth to nothing. You know, it was a bit of it was a bit sad for poor old high school that day.
0: So yeah. How did you balance the the rigors of striving towards academic excellence with your sporting and extracurricular activities in your final year of school? And what what tips uh, would you pass on to the, this year's graduating students?
1: Well, I I did it with difficulty in terms of the academic, but I think you know the the thing we learned at St Patrick's to give everything we did our best shot, and uh, and that sort of uh, stayed with us, you know, we, we had to take responsibility for what we did some people were good at this and some were good at that uh, you know, some were good at both, football, sports and, uh, and academics but um, I think it's it's good to pursue the things you like and are good at and to give it everything, yeah.
0: Okay. Now, leaving St Pat's, how did you um, come to end up at St Kilda, particularly when your older brother, as you've mentioned, was at Melbourne already? And what was the transition from school to VFL footy like? I imagine back in the day you would have had to have worked full-time as well as playing footy on the weekends?
1: Yes, well, I had a, uh, I was under the radar a little bit in that... Uh, I wasn't expected to be playing senior football or anything like that because uh, uh, I was in the minor seminary that was existed at St Patrick's at the time, called St. Peters, and uh, it was only in halfway through the last year that I came to the conclusion that being a priest wasn't for me, and uh, and I applied for the public service in Melbourne on leaving school and. Uh, there was a delay, so I worked at home in my parents' hotel, which was in Berrigan in New South Wales. And the coach at Berrigan at the time was a former Melbourne champion, well, North Melbourne champion, Les Foot, and uh, Les was a bit impressed with you know, my skills on the training track and the school holidays. I played in the seconds there a couple of times, and. Uh, Les wanted to re-ingratiate himself down in Melbourne again, he wanted to get back there. And he's, he reckoned, I guess, that St. Kilda was his best uh, chance, so he took a few players down to have a run at St. Kilda, and St. Kilda were impressed enough to say, well, we want you, you know, we want him. And uh, I had no idea that I was going to be a, a St. Kilda footballer at that stage, in fact, uh, wasn't very keen on the idea at all but you know they persuaded me and they also had a fellow on their committee who was uh, a big wheel in the public service and he arranged to bring forward my appointment and that I should be appointed to the Department of Army on Albert Park Barracks which was right across the road from the St Kilda football ground so uh, my world was all around St Kilda in those days for a few years and uh, um, everything worked out fine.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic.
1: Except in my first game, uh, I was selected as centre half forward as part of the promise. I'd never played there in my life, but I couldn't see myself as a ruckman in VFL uh, at that stage. Anyway, um, by quarter time, I got moved out to the flank because I wasn't doing any good. And I heard a voice from the stand yell clearly as a bell. Get back to Berrigan, you mud Gleeson. <laughs> so that was my first comment from the crowd. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, tell us about your coaches at St Kilda then. Um, you know, first of all, I think Foote was your first coach and then it was Alan... No, no. Uh, Colin
1: Williamson was uh, the coach at the time. Um, and I played a year under him as a, a nice man, a former St Kilda player, um, police sergeant, occupation. But uh, Les put, got the job as captain coach the next year. And Les was a very skillful player personally, but he tried to get everybody else to be the same as he was um, in terms of doing the sort of things that he did, and that most people weren't capable of it. And it, his coaching career didn't go so well. You know, he, he actually led us to the bottom. Uh, and he did that over two years. And then uh, he was replaced by Alan Killigrew. Well, now, Killigrew was my kind of person. He, he really called us all into line and he gave us specific things that uh, he wanted the team to do. And he, you know, he really worked on making a team of us and uh, using handball and backing up very skillfully, which was, wasn't terribly popular in those days. Um, and... He he helped me very much um, to become the best I could be. And in reality, I just had a a gentle sort of growth a bit each year, kept on knowing that I wasn't anywhere near the standard I needed to be. But I kept growing by trying hard and listening to my coach, and it worked. You know, I sort of got to the top. Actually... A year before uh, 1957, they uh, played the first night football at South Melbourne, a competition amongst the teams that didn't make the finals. And the first game was in Kilda and um, South Melbourne. And it was a blunt, blunt bath, you know, with very poor quality lights and lots of uh, unfair play and so forth. And I was I was having a really rough time, including being knocked out. You know, on the The game became a melee there at one time and half a dozen people got finished up getting reported and one fellow finished up with a broken jaw, all this sort of silly stuff. The umpire was a young umpire, not Alan Swab, but Swab was his name at the time, a brother of Alan, I think. It took, uh, you know, they only had one umpire in those days and two boundary umpires and they had a real job to get it back under control. Anyway, that night, after it in the in the um, dressing rooms, I was very dejected and so forth. And Killiger came and sat beside me, and he said, "Look, I know you, you know, you must be down at the moment because of all that went on." He said, "But I, I just want to tell you how proud I was of how you kept on trying, you know, and and you did well." And uh, he said, "You've got enough in you to win a Brownlow Medal." In the next year, that's what happened. Same game, same place, same opposition, um, and the brownler had been counted kind of the night before and I was a winner. So thanks very much on the group
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in that year, in 1957, you obviously had a career best year and you went into the Brownlow count as a, as a favourite. You know, obviously, this was in, a, in an era before the red carpet and the glitzy award ceremonies. So what did you do on that night, and how did you react once it became apparent that you were crowned as the best and fairest player in the league?
1: In those days, they counted the delegates of the clubs counted the Brownlow uh, with the league officials in the league headquarters. And the only media people was, I think, uh, uh, one one radio and two uh, newspaper people, or it might have been three radio. I, you know, that doesn't really matter. But you could only hear about it on the radio. And I was at home and hadn't tuned in. And I got we got a phone call from a fellow I used to uh, do a bit of part time work with. Uh, he, he was a publican. And he said, you've won the brown label. I said, oh, couldn't be. Couldn't be. I said, it wouldn't be. Counted one. I know. Anyway, he said, well, they've counted the first votes. They did counted the three votes, you see, first. And he said, and you've got 18, and Roy Wright's got 12, and John James has got 12. He said, they can't beat you. Anyway, I listened to him, and, um, when they counted the second votes, I got a couple of those. when I counted the thirds, I got a couple of those. So I totaled up to twenty four votes. and um, I think Roy Wright got twenty, and John James got nineteen. So uh, that's how it worked. Now, there was nothing official on from the league on that night, but a lot of uh, media people came around to the home, and you know, my dad had to put on a few beers, I think. and A few interviews, a few photos, and and television. Those days had uh, two evening shows. One run by um, Graham Kennedy, and the other one was run by Young Bert Newton. And they both invited me in, and uh, I I went with the Bert Newton one, and that was the night. So nothing else happened then. But the presentations in those days were uh, were done at the first semi-final, and um, the league had the new Brownlow medalists presented and a dinner with the um, previous Brownlow medalists and a few press members, and the delegates of course, they were running the league in those days, and uh, I was sort of like the guest of honour, except that they had a bigger guest of honour in the Prime Minister, and I was sat next to him, Bob Menzies of those days. And it was a great honour.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's terrific to know that you found out you won the Brownlow Medal by the local publican. That's just brilliant.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, after work, I used to, uh, uh, on a busy night, I'd go down and uh, and pull a few beers for him and then do the same on Saturday to make a little extra money. I wasn't in a well-paid job, but... There was no money in football in those days, so it was £5
0: pounds a game. So after that year, so the Saints missed the finals that year, but your Brownlow win combined you know, with the emergence of some other key players such as Neil Roberts, it gave the Saints faithful some hope that a great year was coming in 1958. In fact, you were named captain of the club and were ready to lead the Saints as a 23-year-old you know, star of the game at the pinnacle of your career, but then fate intervened in a pre-season game. Tell us what happened.
1: Well, it was, uh, it was uh, painful, but I, I knew a recruit that was down to, you know, have a run. Um, he ran into my knee while he was running full pace, and he, he kneed me in the knee uh, while I was pivoting on it, and uh, it did damage to my knee to a degree that these doctors at the time, specialists, thought... Uh, I needed to have my cartilage just removed. I don't think they knew much about um, those uh, pieces that keep the knee together, little ligaments in those days. And so I was stuck with a knee operation and I thought it was going to come good and play again and all that type of thing. But the knee never came good, apparently. I must have busted the uh, the main ligament in the knee and the outside one as well. So um, all the effort after that didn't work As the knee was blowing up and wasn't getting any strength in it despite lots of physiotherapy. And uh, the next year I had another one which was called a synovectomy where they scraped the knee membrane and tried to get it back to stop the fluid but that didn't work either. And the next year... I, I had uh, lots of fluid removed uh, every week after training. I'd go into a doctor and get my knee released of fluid, lots of it, you know, like a pint or something like that uh, each week, and it just wasn't settling down at all. So it was over three years that uh, that I learned that I was never going to play again um, at that level. It, you know... It, just so disappointing, but it uh, it also was a bit like the frog, you know, in the in the kettle of cold water, and he didn't know he was going to be boiling in. Didn't realise that, you know, I was going through that sort of a situation.
0: It must have been an incredibly challenging time mentally um, to try and keep your hopes up that you're going to get back out on the field. What sort of support back in the day did the clubs offer for? people like you, in that sort of situation?
1: Well, there was no uh, support in terms of uh, psychological help or guidance. It didn't exist in those days. Uh, I paid for the operations that I had and for the physiotherapy, but uh, I was on my own outside of that. I the... were sad and sorry about it and all that type of thing, but, uh, yeah, that was just what happened in life.
0: In the following years, you moved to Queensland and coached Cooparoo in the QAFL and attempted a playing comeback. How did that go?
1: Well, there was something else in between that I probably should mention. Um, I was invited to be on the first football panel on television um, in Melbourne, which was the um, Polaco Inquest show on 7 at 7 on a Saturday night when football was only played on Saturdays. And I did that for a couple of years, and that was interesting. Um, I had no idea what impact, it, you know, it had, and nobody did because television was so new. And I I was invited by my company, which was Carnation Milk at the time, to go up to Queensland as their senior representative up there. It was through the uh, publicity I got on the television, I suppose, that I had three invitations to coach. Uh, from you know, I had three teams invite me to coach them up there while I was working, and uh, turned out to be a very good year, for, remuneratively, because I finished up getting uh, three times as much as I would have got in in playing league football, just as a playing coach, and uh, then I got some bonuses if I got into the fall of the team, I'd get a, another. 30%, and then if I got into the grand final, i get another 30%. About half my salary came, half my income that year came out of football. And um, we lost a grand final, but it was, it was fine. Why did I play? Well, I was running around the ground, you know, probably looking good, and people thought I should be good enough to play. And I guess I got at my ego, and I played a few games. I was five years out of the game at that time. Did okay, but not great. Kicked six, seven goals one day. Wasn't bad.
0: Part of what went on. Now, after that stint in Queensland, you came back to Melbourne, um, yep. where you know your close links back to St Patrick's College became even more evident when. You were coaching what was then the St Patrick's Ballarat Old Boys Football Club in the amateur competition. Um, tell us yeah. about some. Tell us about those years and some of the lifelong friends that you made from that involvement.
1: Yeah, well, that that was uh, very fortunate. I remember um, Michael Burke, Doctor Michael Burke, former Old boy, He told me that I ought to coach Newman College because. Uh, a coach up there is resigning and he doesn't want to you know, do it next year. And Newman wanted a coach and he sort of persuaded me to make myself available for that. And um, I did. But, but then I found also that um, there was a midweek competition that St. Pat's had a few old boys who were hankering to maintain their school-day relationships by forming a football team in the MS. Competition in Melbourne, the Saturday competition. So they consulted me, you might say. And, um, you know, I knew some of them. And and I had played a game or two in the first old boys football team that St. Pat's had back in the uh, 40s and early 50s. Anyway, um, I got involved enough that I was helping them to recruit people and then they needed a coach so I took that on as well and I did it for a couple of years and we had a wonderful time um, and you know, the friendships of the school day friendships of the players um, made the club just such a happy place to be and we won a couple of premierships in those first two years and the second year we got a seconds team going and um you know, it was just a pleasure to be part of it. Yeah. So that year, I was coaching Newman College midweeks and Pat's uh, on the weekend, and um, I was also a players' representative on the uh, BFL tribunal, uh, depending for those who, uh, you know, who would um, be, be charged. Yeah.
0: So um, busy year. I kept you busy. And then that yeah. following year, you played a role in St Kilda's famous only ever premiership, which was in 1966. Tell us about your contribution to that year at the uh, Saints. Well,
1: I, I was probably more in a PR role um, at that stage um, as a member of the Committee of Management. Um, but I, I had six years as I a committee man or director at St Kilda. And the last two, I uh, was a, um, a delegate to the VFL for them uh, on the on the football playing side. I used to have two delegates per club, one on the finance committee and one on the permit committee, as they called it, and I was the permit committee man. So um, that is just more experience, you know.
0: And, and what about your life outside football, Brian? You know, tell us about oh, the rest well, of your I, family and your career.
1: Yes, well, the, the year I uh, I um, I married, the year after I won the Brown Lab, and and um, we had four children, and uh, we still have <laughs> uh, nine grandchildren nowadays, and um, unfortunately my wife has been unwell for two and a half years, and she's in care. Um, I live in a um, retirement village myself now. But my career was after leaving the public service, got into the sales world and uh, finished up in the life insurance industry, first as an agent for a few years. and Then I was invited into management and you know, then the regional management and national sales management. And I had 12 years at my peak, I suppose, in that role, that sort of role. And um, things went downhill as I aged. And I finished in the last five years working for the Christian Brothers, <laughs> um, who were running St. Vincent's Boys Home, which became um, of Family
0: Services. Well, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So your career almost went full circle, starting off with the Christian Brothers and then ending off with the Christian Brothers. Yeah, yeah. And yeah
1: uh, yeah, you know, I, I had a happy career. I worked in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Um, Was national roles. I had a lot of travel around Australia before there were video calls or long-term telephone calls that you know you could really get down to business with. Yeah. yeah.
0: So even now, in your later years, and, and even in periods of lockdown due to COVID nineteen, you're still keeping very active. What are you? What are you studying these days?
1: Oh well, I got the attitude uh, that I probably learnt by necessity that one has to keep growing in life, uh, and uh, particularly as I had such a what I regard as a, a poor academic career at school, and uh, today, I, I, I did finish up writing a book, nearly 500 pages, which is I call the Gleason Butler story, you know, going from uh, my great-grandparent level, and uh, that, that was the biggest thing I ever did in my life, but I, I never considered myself a good writer, and now I'm just, just doing writing for pleasure type of a, a course every week. We uh, we have homework uh, and we send it out to one another in the group and then uh, we get together on Zoom on a Friday morning and uh, have a chat about it. And it gives focus to that part of my life and uh, a, a lot of pleasure to, uh, to catch up with these people every week and to uh, Challenge myself to write better,
0: yeah. so that's what I do. Uh, Paul That's oh, a great yeah. example of lifelong learning. Now, as we've mentioned before, that you know you're not quite the oldest surviving Brownlow medalist. As I think Neil Roberts is marginally older than yeah. you, but you know nobody who won a Brownlow before you is still with us. So you've got a very unique place in the game's history. Do you still watch the footy a lot? And you know,
1: oh um, yes, I enjoy my football. Uh, I think it's the most exciting thing that comes on television these days. Um, and I watch a lot of television. It's my best friend, the television. It's my worst enemy because I watch too much of it sometimes and go to sleep in front of it. But um, football on television is really good, I think.
0: Yeah. Which players do you take yeah. interest in? Particularly when some children are winning. In? Oh, when the Saints are winning, yeah. So which players yeah. do you take an interest in? Which players? Yeah. Oh, well, I try and keep a...
1: And, uh, you know, a bit of a, an eye on uh, some of the St. Pat's boys who, who are doing well. Um, young um, Young Duggan over there. It's good to see him playing well now. And uh, young Dan Butler I haven't met yet, but I'm delighted he's at St. Kilda. And uh, when he does well, St. Kilda win. So that's all very good.
0: Fantastic. Who's your tip to win the Brownlow medal this year? I feel for the very good players. Like um, Martin at Richmond and
1: Dangerfield at uh, Geelong, the game is is geared to help the to give the uh, defender the advantage. You know, people sh- sit on one another in terms of when they get the ball, and they grab them or rush them into the ground, um, and they're very tightly held these days. You know, so the brilliance is probably knocked off a bit. Uh, and so it could well be a new fellow this year, rather than one of the the champions who, you know, is still dumbed down a bit by uh, by the
0: unfortunate rules of the game at the moment. I think. Yeah, I take it you're not a fan of taggers then. Well,
1: I think uh, there's too many too many um, what do they call them scrums with too many people around it. They have to move the ball quickly, and they have to move it accurately, and all that type of thing. But that's uh, that's all very clever. But um, the game, I think, would be a better a better game if we had maybe two less players. They're you know such talented and skilled and athletic people these days that they cover a lot more ground, do things more quickly, and. Um, But the the skills get get covered up a bit when uh, the the tackling is so easy, in my opinion.
0: Brian, I have one final question for you. When you look back on your life, what role has St. Patrick's College played in your life?
1: Ah, very important question. I think it was very formative in my value system. It was... uh, a great opportunity to develop uh, skills in the areas of my life that I was good at. gave me plenty of people to be friends with, and uh, it always was my alma mater in the truest sense of the word. Uh, I've always been made welcome when I've come back to St. Pat's and felt part of the place. Uh, there's probably more to it than I've spoken, but those things come to mind.
0: Very important in my life, yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your great memories with us today. It's wonderful to still have you involved with the college. Many may not be aware that we struck a medal in your honour a couple of years ago. The Brian Gleeson Medal is now awarded to the St Patrick's College. First 18 player who uh, is named best on ground in the Herald Sun Shield Grand Final, so that's a great honour for you, and and it's great to have you as an exemplar for our students today. So thank you again, Brian, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Paul. It's for me, it's a real honour to have been invited, and uh, it's been a real privilege to have the benefits I've achieved through being connected with
0: St. Pat's, Bunure. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of the St. Patrick's College Old Collegians Association podcast series. We aim to produce two of these each term and we'll distribute them through the Green, White and Blue e-newsletter which is emailed to all Old Collegians twice a term. If you're not receiving it and want to sign up for it make sure you get in contact with the college and give us your details. We look forward to seeing you again when the next episode airs.